Section 4 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 10, Part 1. The frolic and the fun that, in spite of care and penury, enlivened the exiled court of Saint-Germain were suddenly sobered by a change in the politics of Versailles. After trifling with the exiled queen and her council, and above all, with their faithful adherents in Scotland, during the momentous crisis of the Union, when even the semblance of support from France would have been followed by a general rising in favor of the son of James II, Louis XIV determined, in the spring of 1708, to fit out a fleet and armament for the purpose of effecting a descent on the coast of Scotland, headed by that prince in person. This expedition had been kept so secret that neither Mary Beatrice nor her son were aware of what was intended, till the latter received a hasty summons to join the armament. The young prince tarried not for preparations, but bidding his mother and sister a hasty farewell, he set off for Dunkirk, the place of embarkation, attended only by two or three of the officers of his suite, leaving his baggage to follow. Unfortunate in everything, he had scarcely reached the coast when he was attacked with the measles. Everyone knows the nature of that malady, which requires the patient to be kept in an equal temperature till after the third day. The prince was of a consumptive constitution, and the weather very cold, for it was March. Nevertheless, he would have embarked at all hazards, if his attendants would have allowed it. His impatience of the delay was almost as injurious to him as the risk of striking in the eruption by exposure to cold would have been. Aware of the necessity of acting with energy and promptitude, he caused himself to be carried on board the French fleet before prudence warranted him in quitting his chamber. The wind had, meantime, changed. Foul weather ensued, and it was not till after several ominous mischances and some personal peril to the royal adventurer, that the armament succeeded in getting out to sea, and by that time, the English fleet, under the command of Sir George Bing, had sailed and was on the lookout. The feelings of the royal mother, during that anxious period of suspense, will be best described by herself in one of her confidential letters to her friend, Angelique Priolo. After detailing the symptoms of a fit of illness, brought on by her distress at parting with her son, she says, I must take patience in this as in many other things, which disquiet me at present, and keep me in a state of great agitation, for I know nothing certain of my son, as you will see by the copy of the newspaper they shall send you. My only consolation is the thought that he is in the hands of God, and in the place where he ought to be, and I hope God, in his mercy, will have a care of him. Cease not to pray, my dear mother, for him and for me, for our wants are extreme, and there is no one but God who can or will support us. I am in spirit with you all, although my mind is in such agitation that I cannot remain long in a place, but my heart will always be with you and my dear mother Priolo, who, I am sure, suffer with me and for me. The Princess Louisa, who is passionately attached to her brother, and earnestly desired to see him established in the regal dignity, which she regarded as his right, fully shared her mother's anxiety on this occasion. As soon as the queen was able to bear the journey, they both proceeded to Chalot, 
fondly imagining that the prayers which they and their ladies were incessantly preferring to God for his personal safety and success would be more efficacious if offered up in the tribune of the conventual church there, where the hearts of Queen Henrietta Maria and her son King James were enshrined. The all-powerful affection of Mary Beatrice for her deceased husband persuaded her that his spirit, which she firmly believed to be in a state of beatitude, always united with her in prayers to God for the attainment of any object of peculiar interest to both, such as the recovery from illness, the spiritual enlightenment, or personal safety of their children. The day the queen and her daughter arrived at Chalot, it was confidently reported in Paris that the prince had succeeded in effecting a descent on the coast of Scotland, and had been well received. The next morning, Mary Beatrice told the nuns, that she had dreamed a little old woman came and said to her, No, he will not land this time. Now, although it was evident that the queen's nerves were unbraced by sickness, anxiety, fasting, and prayer, the vision of the oracular little old woman made a great impression, both on the community and her ladies, and they all began to relate stories of signs and omens. I can remember well, said the princess Louisa, Though I was not quite four years old at the time, that when the late king, my father, left Saint-Germain to join the armament at Calais, expecting to embark for England, I dreamed that I saw him return in a blue coat, instead of the scarlet coat he wore when he went away, and he said to me, This place must be my England. It was not the first time that the dream of the youngest daughter of James II had been related in that circle, for even in her infancy it had been recorded as a solemn revelation, that the exiled king was to behold his native land no more, but to end his days at Saint-Germain. To imagine anything of the kind into an augury is almost to ensure its fulfillment. James II allowed more than one opportunity for effecting a landing in England, in the absence of the rival sovereign, to slip, from the idea that a decree had gone forth against his restoration. The dream of Mary Beatrice had, in a manner, prepared the ladies of her court for the news of the failure of the expedition. The cause of its failure remains to this day among the unexplained mysteries of history. It is true that in consequence of the fatal three days' detention of the prince, before the turn of his malady permitted him to embark, the wind, which had been previously fair, changed. That Forbin, the French admiral, was out of temper, and could not be persuaded to leave the port till the 6th of March, and then encountered a heavy storm. Meantime, the English fleet, under Sir George Byng, got out to sea, gave chase, and took to Salisbury, man-of-war, an English vessel, belonging to Forbin's fleet. Byng was greatly superior in force. Forbin entered the Frith of Forth, just below Edinburgh. It has been affirmed by some that the prince vainly implored to be permitted to land with the troops, provided for that purpose by the king of France, or even accompanied only by the gentlemen of his suite, so sure did he feel that he should receive an honorable reception, but nothing could be prevailed on Forbin to permit it. Others have said that the prince was actually captured in the Salisbury, and that Bing preserved his royal mistress, Queen Anne, from a most painful and perplexing dilemma, by sending him privately on board Forbin's ship, having taken his word of honor that he would return to France without attempting to land. If this romantic tale be founded on fact, 
being acted with consummate wisdom in ridding the queen of an invasion at the easy rate of releasing a prisoner whom she could scarcely have ventured to proceed against according to the severity of the law there was a prodigious run on the bank of england at this crisis and some danger of cash payments being suspended national credit being at a low ebb the squadron however which had created such great alarm returned to dunkirk without having attempted much less effected a single stroke a letter from mary beatrice to her friend the abbess of chalot apparently written the day after the arrival of her son at saint germain betrays the harassing state of affairs in her little court where every one was charging the disappointment on some inimical person or other the desolation of my soul she says would excite your pity if you could look into its depths my heart is also much broken and i have had for these ten days past business and domestic quarrels that have disquieted and vexed me to a degree of which i am ashamed and i declare to you that coming so immediately on the rest of my troubles i have been completely overwhelmed with it all pray god my dearest mother to succor and support me and to increase my strength for never have i had greater need and never have i appeared so feeble i dare not tell you that i have not yet been with my son i know it is a great fault but these last affairs have scarcely left me time for my prayers and although during the octave of the holy sacrament i have tried to go oftener to church god knows with what distraction of mind i have missed the first procession and the journey to versailles i shall go to marley to-morrow i was on friday at the review my son was there and many of the english who were as it was said well pleased with him my god what a world this is and who can understand it for my part the more i know of it the less i comprehend it unhappy are they who have much to do with it my son had arrived before me on my return from chalot this appears to have been the reason she had missed seeing him as he had been compelled to show himself at the review where it should seem he had been well received notwithstanding the failure of the last expedition in which he had been evidently the victim of state policy as absurd as it was incomprehensible the queen concludes her letter in these words madame de maintenon was here nearly two hours yesterday lady buckley makes me pity her although she does not know the unhappy manner of her husband's death this sentence implies some tragedy connected with the fate of the gallant colonel buckley which the queen had learned but had not courage to communicate to her faithful attendant lady sophia buckley several persons of high rank in the british emigration had been captured in the salisbury among the rest the two sons of the earl of middleton lord claremont and mr middleton and the old attached servant of king james lord griffin mary beatrice was greatly afflicted when she learned that they were all committed close prisoners to the tower to take their trials for high treason she wrote with her own hand an earnest letter to the french minister chamillard begging him to claim them as officers in the service of his royal master and exerted her influence in every possible way for their preservation simultaneously with these events queen anne's cabinet proceeded to set a price on her brother's head anne herself who had hitherto styled him the pretended prince of wales now gave him a new name in her address to parliament calling him for the first time the pretender 
a cunningly devised sobriquet, which perhaps did more to exclude him from the throne than even his unpopular religion. The young prince served in the French army in the Low Countries the same spring, as a volunteer, under the appropriate title of the Chevalier de St. George, for, being destitute of the means of providing a camp equipage, and maintaining the state consistent with royalty, he claimed no higher distinction than the companionship of the national order, with which he had been invested in his fourth year by the late sovereign his father. He conducted himself during the campaign so as to win the affection and esteem of his comrades, and especially his commander, the Duc de Vendôme. While her son was in the army, Mary Beatrice was, of course, deeply interested in all the military operations, of which he sent her a regular account. In one of her letters to a friend, the abbess of Chalot, she says, We have been in expectation of great news for several days past. I will tell you in confidence that they have missed in Flanders the opportunity of a grand stroke, and I fear that a similar one will not present itself any more this campaign. God must be praised for all, and we ought to try to be satisfied with all that happens. I have just learned that the thunder has fallen this night on the Abbey of Poissy and burned part of the monastery, and what is worse, three or four of the religieuses. I have sent to the abbess to make inquiries. In truth, it makes me tremble. Well, indeed, it might, since the scene where this awful tragedy had occurred was only six miles from Saint-Germain, in the valley below, much less likely to have attracted the lightning than the loftily seated royal chateau, where the widowed consort and orphan daughter of James II were domiciled. In another letter of the same period, dated at Saint-Germain, the 23rd of June, Mary Beatrice says, My chevalier is in perfect health, thank God, and I am better than I have been for a long time. We have some hopes of obtaining the liberty of the two Middletons and of the other Irish prisoners, but for my Lord Griffin, they have condemned him to die on the 27th of this month, which causes me great pain. I recommend him to your prayers and to those of our dear sisters. The Chevalier St. George had the ill luck to be present with his French cousins, Burgundy and Berry, at the Battle of Audenard, a witness of the superior military genius of his secret correspondent, the Duke of Marlborough, his more fortunate rival, the Electoral Prince of Hanover, afterwards George II, distinguished himself on the winning side. The Chevalier caught the malignant intermittent fever of the country at Mans, and returned, greatly enfeebled, for the change of air to Saint-Germain, towards the close of the summer. It was a cold wet autumn, severe winter, and ungenial spring. The queen was ill, anxious and unhappy, on account of her son, for the intermittent hung upon him for many months. Yet he was firm in his determination to try his fortunes in another campaign. On the 11th of April, 1709, Mary Beatrice writes to the abbess of Chalot to excuse herself from passing the Holy Week with her friends there the physicians having forbidden her to change her abode that month, unless the weather altered very much for the better. She adds, If the war continues, as is supposed, the king, my son, will be very shortly on the point of leaving me for the army. It is not right, therefore, that I should quit him, more especially as he is not yet wholly recovered from his fever, for he had a little touch of it again yesterday. Though he perseveres in taking the bark, five times a day. 
This is sufficient to show us that the will of God declares against my journey to Shalot for this time, but when my son is gone, I hope that God will permit me to come and remain among you for a long time. Meanwhile, I shall often be there in spirit, and I doubt not, but my dear mother and our beloved sisters will remember me also when before God, to the end that I may obtain from him the graces and the assistance that be needful for the work of my salvation, in that place and state, where he wills me to be, which I ought always to believe, and consider the best for me. The late defeated Audenard, the loss of Lyle, the distress caused by the visitation of a famine, and above all, the deficiency in the revenues of that kingdom, rendered Louis the Fourteenth not only willing, but anxious to listen to overtures of peace. Instead of the armies taking the field, plenipotentiaries were dispatched to meet the victorious Marlborough and Eugene at The Hague, to settle preliminaries for an amicable treaty. Mary Beatrice was well aware that no peace would or could be concluded, unless Louis the Fourteenth withdrew his protection from her son. The prince was eager to prevent the mortification of a dismissal from the French dominions by trying his fortunes in Scotland. He had received fresh invitations and assurances of support from the Highland chiefs. The representations of his secret agents as to his prospects were encouraging enough to induce him to declare that he would come if he were reduced to the necessity of performing the voyage in a hired vessel. When he threw himself at the feet of Louis the Fourteenth and implored his aid, the monarch told him plainly, The situation as he then was, he had enough to do to defend his own dominions, without thinking of anything so chimerical as invading those of the victorious Queen of Great Britain. The ardor of the youthful adventurer was moreover checked by a significant hint, that if he attempted to embroil his present protector further with Queen Anne, by stealing over to Scotland and exciting an insurrection there, his royal mother would instantly be deprived of her present shelter and her pension, which formed the sole provision for the support of herself, her daughter, and the faithful followers who had sacrificed everything to their adherence to the ruined cause of the House of Stuart would be stopped. It is a remarkable fact that when Torcy mentioned the son of James II to Marlborough, the latter evinced a warmth of feeling towards the exiled prince, scarcely consistent with his professions to the electoral house of Hanover. He called him the Prince of Wales, and expressed an ardent desire of serving him, and that a suitable income should be secured to him. Nor was he unmindful of the claims of Mary Beatrice. He recommended Torcy to renew the demand of her dower. Insist strenuously on that article to the Viscount Townsend, he said. That lord is a sort of an inspector over my conduct. He is an honest man, but a Whig. I must speak like an obstinate Englishman in his presence. Marlborough was still more explicit in his conferences with his nephew Berwick, who, being the illegitimate brother of the prince, formed a curious link of connection between the great captain of the age and the rejected heir of England. Undoubtedly Marlborough gave wise counsel when he bade the Duke of Berwick entreat the prince to emancipate himself from the political thraldom of France by offering to disembarrass Louis the Fourteenth of his presence as a preliminary to the negotiations for peace. He clearly demonstrated that no good could ever result from a connection so offensive to the national pride of England, 
for the people over whom he desired to rule would never submit to the imposition of a sovereign from France. He hoped, he said, by extricating the prince in the first place from the influence of France, and by prudent arrangement, to see all parties united to recognize him as the successor to his sister's throne. Neither the prince nor Berwick felt sufficient confidence in the integrity of Marlborough to take his advice. Men can only judge of intentions by past deeds. They called to mind his treachery to their royal father, and suspected that the zeal with which he urged pressing the payment of the queen mother's dower was for the purpose of beguiling the prince into bartering his pretensions to a diadem for a pension, and at the same time depriving him of the support of his only friend and protector, Louis the Fourteenth. The Pacific negotiations at The Hague proving unavailing, the conferences were broken up, and hostilities were renewed. The Chevalier, having recovered his health, set out for the French headquarters, leaving his royal mother to struggle with pecuniary difficulties, which neither wisdom could foresee nor prudence prevent, all hope of receiving her income as Queen Dowager of England was, of course, suspended, and the pittance she received from the French government was now unpunctually paid and subject to curtailment on various pretenses. The first attempt, on the part of the officers of the French exchequer, to extort a percentage from her treasurer, Mr. Dickinson, for paying her pension in ready money, was resisted by Mary Beatrice with some spirit, as an imposition and abuse of office, which, she said, she was sure would be displeasing to the King of France. They kept her then in arrear, and offered to pay in bills, on which she was compelled to pay, as much for discount as the official thieves had demanded of her in the first instance. She mentioned the circumstance to Madame de Maintenon, but that lady, who had herself been an underling at court, accustomed to perquisites and privileges, made light of it, and advised Her Majesty not to incur the ill-will of the financial corps by complaining to the king, who was greatly inconvenienced himself by the deficiency in his revenue. Bitterly did the royal dependent feel the humiliations and privations to which the wrongs of fortune had subjected her and her children, and vainly did she endeavor, by increasing self-denial and the most rigid economy in her personal expenditure, to spare more for the destitute families who had abandoned houses and broad lands in England for her husband's sake. The pecuniary difficulties of the fallen queen were embittered, about this period, by a mortification from a quarter where she least expected it. When at Chalot, her daughter was accustomed to sleep in a chamber that opened into her own, an arrangement which their near relationship and tender affection rendered agreeable to both. But the queen being deeply in arrears to the convent, for the rent of the suite of rooms she occupied, the abbess feeling more disposed to consider the benefit of the community than the comfort of their royal friends, hinted that having a tenant for the apartment adjoining her majesty's bedroom, it would be desirable to remove her royal highness, the princess of England, to an upper story. Mary Beatrice did not attempt to dissemble the fact that the change would be both unpleasant and inconvenient to her, and was greatly hurt, a few months later, on finding that the room was actually let to Madame de Lorange, a lady of high rank, and her daughter, and that they had made sundry alterations, furnished and taken possession of it. When, however, those ladies learned from a letter written by Lady Sophia Buckley to the abbess, 
how greatly the queen and princess would be inconvenienced by their occupation of this apartment, they said, Her Majesty should be welcome to the use of it when she came to Chalot with the princess. The high spirit of Mary Beatrice revolted at this proposal, yet she wrote, with great mildness and temper, to the abbess on the subject. After having desired Lady Buckley to write to you, my dear mother, touching the chamber where my daughter lodges at Chalot, I have remembered me that when last year you proposed to me to change my daughter's apartment and to put her higher, I found that it would be very difficult to arrange it, as my ladies would have much trouble to accommodate themselves in places which are now occupied by their waiting maids, especially for any length of time, and that my daughter herself would not be so well above, nor would it be so convenient for me, as at present I have no other chamber below, besides that in which she lodges. However, if you, my dear mother, or Madame, or Mademoiselle de Lorange, have any trouble about taking this apartment, I pray you to tell me so plainly, with your usual sincerity, and I will endeavor to make some other arrangement, at least if it be in our power. You can, if you please, consult my dear sisters, Catherine Angelique, and Mademoiselle Gabrielle, about it, and then take your resolution, and send me word, for in case my daughter can continue where she is, I should wish them to take away the furniture of Madame and Mademoiselle de Lorange, and I would send mine. I also beg you to have the window put to rights, and the other things that are required in the little lodging, and send me the bill of what they come to, as that is only just. I cannot accept the offer Madame de Lorange makes me of the loan of her chamber. I say this in case she wishes to take it away from me. The apartment was, of course, relinquished by the intruding tenant. It was, indeed, the dressing-room of Her Majesty's chamber, which no stranger could with any propriety have wished to occupy, and the attempt to deprive her of it served very painfully to remind the royal exiles of their adverse fortunes. The Princess Louisa felt every slight that was offered to her mother, or brother, far more keenly than they did. Sometimes she said, we are reduced to such pitiable straits, and live in so humble a way, that even if it were the will of heaven to restore us to our natural rank, we should not know how to play our parts with becoming dignity. The defeat of the French army at Malplaquet, on the 11th of September, 1709, increased the general gloom which pervaded all ranks in that nation, while it rendered the position of the court of Saint-Germain more painful and precarious. Yet the desolate heart of Mary Beatrice swelled with maternal pride in the midst of her solicitude, for her son had distinguished himself by a brilliant personal action in that fiercely contested fight, which had nearly turned the fortunes of the day. After Mariscal Villers was carried dangerously wounded out of the field, Boufflers sustained the conflict, and when the cavalry of the Allies broke into his lines, he ordered the Chevalier de St. George to advance at the head of twelve hundred of the horse guards. The princely volunteer performed this duty so gallantly, that in one desperate charge the German horse was broken and repulsed, and nothing but the steady valor of the English troops, and the consummate skill of their commanders, prevented the rout from becoming general. The rejected claimant of the British crown did not disgrace his lineage on that occasion, though unhappily serving beneath the banner of the fleur-de-lis, and opposed to his own countrymen. He charged twelve times at the head of the household troops of France, and though wounded in the right arm by a saber cut, 
he kept the ground manfully under a continuous fire of six hours from the British infantry. Boufflers, in his dispatch to his own sovereign, detailing the loss of the battle, renders the following brief testimony to the gallantry of the royal volunteer. The Chevalier de St. George behaved himself during the whole action with the utmost valor and vivacity. The queen, who had been residing for many weeks in complete retirement with her daughter at Chalot, came to welcome her son on his return to Saint-Germain, where they kept their united court, if such it might be called, that winter. The following melancholy letter without date was probably written by Mary Beatrice towards the spring, when depressed by sickness and care, and harassed with business which, as she pathetically observes, was never an agreeable kind. At last I find a moment to write to you, my dear mother, and to ask tidings of your health, for which I am in pain, for Monsieur Gaylard told me that it was not too good. Be careful of it, for the love of heaven, my dear mother, for I have need of you, as you know. Alas, there are none left to me now, but you and Father Ruga, on earth, in whom I can have an entire confidence. I have read the homily on Providence, which is consolatory. I cannot say, however, that I have found consolation in that or anything else. God is the master, and his holy will be done. I am not ill, but I sleep badly, since I quitted you, and I am worse after the bath, which I cannot understand. But I have omitted it for the last fortnight, and take the powders and waters of Saint-Rémy. The king, my son, has had a cold, but I hope it will not increase. He does not keep his room. My daughter bathes twice a week. She is, however, very well. It has refreshed her. I cannot tell you more for want of time, save to charge you with my regards. After various kind messages to the sisters of Chalot, she mentions with great concern the sudden illness which had seized one of the most faithful and valued members of her household. Mr. Strickland has been attacked with paralysis. He has great trouble to speak. His wife is in despair. They will send him to Bourbon. I am grieved about it, and shall be very sorry to lose him, for he is an ancient servant, and very affectionate. I recommend him to your prayers. Endorsed to Mother Priolo. Reminiscences of her former greatness must have been associated in the mind of the fallen queen, with her recollection of the services of the faithful adherent, whose illness she mentions with such compassionate feeling and regret. Robert Strickland was her vice-chamberlain, he was appointed to that office on the extension of the late king, her husband, to the throne of Great Britain, and he had walked at the head of her procession at the splendid ceremonial of her coronation. What melancholy reverses had since then clouded the horizon of her, who was the leading star of that glorious pageant. Alas, for the instability of human pomp and power, and worse, far worse, the deceitfulness of fair day friends. Of all the courtly train who had contended for the honor of performing services for their young and beautiful queen that day, the gay and gallant Dorset, the magnificent Devonshire, the specious Halifax, the astute Manchester, and the enamored Godolphin, the bearers of her regalia, who of all these had been willing to follow her in exile and in sorrow? Were not those men the first to betray their too confiding sovereign and to transfer their worthless homage to the adversary? 
well might the luckless queen prize the manly and true-hearted northern squire who had adhered to her fallen fortunes with unswerving loyalty and having served her as reverently in her poverty and affliction as when he waited upon her in the regal palace of whitehall was now dying in a land of strangers far from his home who can wonder at her lamenting the loss of such a servant another of the queen's letters apparently written in the spring of seventeen ten when her beloved friend Françoise Angélique and several of the sisters of Chalot were dangerously ill of an infectious fever, is, in reply to a request from the abbess, that she would defer her visit to the convent, for fear of exposing her to the contagion, and speaks a generous warmth of feeling and freedom from all selfish fears, only to be found in persons of piety and moral worth it is altogether a unique royal letter and the reader cannot fail of being amused as well as interested saint germain the fourteenth of may your last letter my dear mother has caused me great pain by the sad account that you give me of the state of several of our dear sisters but above all that of my dear mother priolo of which i could much wish to inform myself and if i had not intended to go to chalot for the rogation i should have been there yesterday or to-day expressly for that purpose i should be glad also to see my poor little portress and i cannot see any reason among all you have mentioned why i should not come you know that i have no fear but of colds and i cannot perceive any cause to apprehend infection with you so then with your permission my dear mother i shall reckon to be with you on monday evening about seven o'clock and i entreat you to send me tidings of our invalids this evening the drowsiness of my sister f a that is Françoise angelique does not please me i am very glad you have made her leave off the viper broth which is too heating for her i hope the sickness of my sister louise henriette will not be unto death i have prayed much for you all as for your temporal business i saw madame de m that is made to none this day week and she said nothing to me about it nor has she written of it since i fear this is not a good sign i send her a letter i know not whether you have read those of monsieur d'autun to me which you might have done as they have only a flying seal if you have you will be convinced that our good mother of annecy has engaged me very unluckily in the affair of that priest whom she called a saint and who it appears was very far from meriting that name i have made my excuses to monsieur d'autun and will write to him between this and monday we are all very well here thank god i could wish to find all well or at least better with you my daughter must not come but for me there is nothing to fear adieu my dear mother i am yours with all my heart and i embrace my dear mother priolo end of section four